everybody. You're listening to The Breakfast Show on Faith FM, 87.6, 87.8 or 88. Right across Australia, right across the Faith FM network, wherever you are. Positively different radio in the morning. You are with the Double L Team Live and... Lawson. Lawson, how are you this morning? I'm great. I'm just happy to be here. Happy to be on time. That's happy cool. to be living my best life. That sounds like a lot of things to be thankful and happy for. I'm, I'm what, also, what, in, what in particular are you thankful for this morning? Um, I guess, yeah, we had a prayer meeting last night for our church. Uh, and we, we do it every Thursday. We jump on, like, Zoom or Facebook, you know, Messenger chat. Uh, and we do, like, a, a, a prayer call uh, with my care group. And we get together and just pray for the people at our care group, pray for the things that we want to see happen in our church or any of the prayer requests that people have. And it's honestly just the most inspiring time. Like, it's just amazing. Like, every time we pray, well, firstly, like, every time we pray, there are definitely a- answers to our prayers. Like, God works uh but also it's really good because we just inspire one another encourage one another in the faith it's it's literally the best like thursday night is like the best thursday night and sunday mornings that's our prayer meetings and it's just amazing ah that sounds absolutely fantastic so guess what i'm thankful for this morning what are you thankful for free stuff yeah, same. I guess. Free stuff is always cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I got some free stuff yesterday. Going to get some uh-huh. more free stuff today. Uh huh. So Where I'm from? Get, what kind of free stuff? Um, so I'm going to get. I'm getting a free fi- a fireplace today. That's okay. That's pretty awesome. Free stuff, particularly this kind of year when it's freezing cold oh, outside. It's so cold. I was like, I, my house is old and freezing, and yes. I go upstairs where there's no heater, and I literally breathe, and fog comes out of my mouth inside my house. It's so, so you're cold. walking around inside your house with. Thick jacket, yeah. Yeah. beanie, yeah. scarf, gloves. Dude, Australian winter is the worst. Come on. It's tough. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. Let's uh, talk about some positively different news this morning. Lawson, what have you got to share with us? Okay, something else that I'm grateful about. I recently got a puppy at my, yes. at my home. Its name is Ned. Ned. Ned is so cute. He's a little blue healer puppy. Best dog ever. It's just the best. And Cattle dogs are amazing. Runs around and is really dumb because it's a baby. And well, shoot, has it got started to chew your shoes yet? Nah, not yet. It but will it, happen. But it loves me. This, yes. is, this is the thing. It loves me because that's the nature of dogs. Because well, yeah. But but it loves me specifically because I get home from radio and I have a bit of a break before I do any work in the afternoon. And so, like, I'm at home during the day when no one's there. And so I get this one-on-one time with Ned. And then Ned's just in love with me. And he'll come to me rather than, like, my dad specifically. And, and my dad doesn't like it. He's like, but Ned's my dog. <laughs> <laughs> but Ned's uh, getting all the attention yep. from Lawson. So Ned Ned is uh, gravitating to Lawson. He is, he is, he is. <laughs> but, so I read this morning because Ned is already, like, Ned is a six-week-old Baby, I think seven weeks now. Yes. And Ned's already running around, playing with his toys, like doing all this stuff that humans at seven weeks old would just be not doing. They'd just be lying and doing nothing. Uh, But at seven weeks old, I can already point to something and Ned will go to it. Nice. And a a study done in the University of Arizona, they have just looked at this idea in its totality and they've tried to work out whether dogs do this because of exposure to humans or whether they are pre-programmed genetically 
to respond to pointing calls. Okay. Because because there are pretty much, like, particularly at birth, there are pretty much no other species of animal that does this. That will look where you point. That will look where you point. They'll just look at your hand. But see, dogs will point. Yeah. Dogs but will, they point with their nose. Dogs will point. Dogs will look where you point. You know, we even have breeds of dogs that are called pointers. Yes. Because that's what they actually do. Mm-hmm. They will point at the prey when they discover where the prey is so that the hunter will be able to yeah. locate the location of the prey that they're hunting. Well, even like I was reading here, even chimpanzees, like if they, when you point to something, a chimpanzee will just look at your hand. And even baby humans, like they, like human babies can't discern that you are pointing at something. Yet you've got a seven week old puppy that can figure out that you are pointing at stuff. Yes. That is amazing. So that is where they've gone in and they've done this research to find out how this works. Um, and they found that ultimately puppies are born to do this. They don't learn it. They're not exposed to it. No, they are born to do this. And how they know this in particular is because um, essentially what they did is they put a hidden treat somewhere in the room and they got the human to point to it and the puppy to run to it. Now, they did this with puppies over... as great span of time, you know, a couple of weeks, they got these puppies back in and back in and back in. And the consistency at which they found the treat stayed consistent for all of them. Like it didn't move. It didn't fluctuate, meaning that they didn't learn to like, they weren't learning to respond to the So they weren't getting call. better at it. They weren't getting better at it. It was exactly the same. It was, it was consistent exactly right the way the through. Same. So from the very first time you pointed at the treat to the very last time you pointed at the treat, their level of success was the same. Yes. and, and uh, That's interesting. Of course, we're talking about puppies. Like once dogs get older and you're training them and training yeah, them and training them, then, then it just gets better and better. But yes. when they're talking about puppies that... that are not pre-programmed. Not they haven't, pre-programmed. They, they haven't been have trained. Exposure. They haven't been to puppy school. And then they get, they get some limited exposure that would increase their ability to do it. They still found... Not, like... No difference. They're just pre-programmed. See, the other thing that is really interesting about dogs is that dogs get more positive endorphins flowing through their body from human interaction than they do from dog Mm -hmm. interaction. Mm -hmm. So they would rather dogs would actually rather be with a human being than with with another dog. Now they love to be with other dogs. They are a pack animal. That's what they love to do. But they prefer humans. And it really does, you know, a dog is definitely man's best friend. There's no question about that. I I believe that they were created to be man's best friend. And this is like my ultimate point is that like, you know, I think it would start to become really difficult to just make this, make the point that the perfect companion for men, as you said before, you know, point to dogs to go and sniff out the prey before going in and hunt. Like this, um, although, you know, we have selective breeding with dogs and we've created species of dogs that do that better. These are ultimately traits of dogs that they've had during the beginning. They perfectly complement the ruling species of the planet which is humanity. Yes. And it's like, okay, how does that even happen? I just think everyone should get a dog. 100%. I think everyone should get a dog. In fact, we would love to know from you, what kind of what kind of pup do you have? What, yeah. what's, what's your yeah. dog? I have a uh, I have a stumpy tail cattle dog, very mm-hmm. close relative of your blue cattle dog. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, what kind of dog do you have? Call us, let us know, send yeah. us a text message. 0491-064-669. Get in, guys, and, and tell, tell us, us one unique thing it. about your dog. Yeah, tell us a funny thing it's done. Too. Something, anything. Just anything about your dog. What kind of dog do you have? We would love to know. Is it a good guard dog? 
Ooh. Does it bark when oh, people man, arrive? Oh, man, my dog barks like crazy. It's at that stage where it can't be left alone still. Yes. And it's just like we put it in a little enclosure and shut the door and leave it there. It's a nature of And then it's just, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It just goes crazy. Yes. All right. It's a cattle dog thing. I have one more story to share this morning that I thought was so cool. So basically, um, scientists in Israel have created an electric nose. Actually, no, they, they tested it in Israel. They are from the Netherlands and they have created an electric nose. And this electric nose sniffs out COVID-19. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, because, and I was reading... So now we don't have to get our brains prodded anymore to find out whether we have it or not? Pretty much. Well, this is still in its testing phases, and they're finding that it's got a 95% accuracy, basically because every, like, disease has a metabolic process, and that smells because metabolites smell. They have specific smells. And so, therefore, they've created this nose that they, like... This is so cool. They tested it for the first time in Tel Aviv in Israel. They put it on, like, a, a, a... desk chair like an office chair and they wheeled it over and they like they had a they had like a remote control on the the desk chair they it, like they wheeled it over to the car they pressed the button on the desk chair the desk chair rose up to like the car you know window level smelt around and at the moment it's taking about 80 seconds because of you know they've just developed this, yep, this is a testing page tech. it's taking about 80 seconds and it comes back like i said with a 95% success rate of smelling covid out of people yeah, see, I much prefer this. I've seen how they've done the. Uh, have you ever had, had a? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've I've had, had it too. Had your brain oh product. man, it is the worst. And Shell's had it a couple of times as well, and it just sounds very not exciting, not mm. fun at all. So if they can have something that just has a sniff, I'm all for it. Let's uh, bring it on. All right, you're listening to the Breakfast Show podcast on Faith FM, positively different. Okay, so for those people who are my age or older, you will remember that back during the 1980s, there were massive campaigns around the world to raise money for starving children Mm. in Africa and particularly in Ethiopia. And so, you know, you sort of have those comments that sort of grew out of that era, like, you know, you better finish that food on on your plate, that would, you know... Ethiopian. An African child could eat that, yeah. An, yeah, an African. An Ethio- well, it was, back then it was an Ethiopian child because Ethiopia was where the big famine was. Mm. And, of course, Africa being a, a, a poverty-stricken continent is a place where famines do take place from time to time. What we, what we now know is that the famine that took place in the 1980s in northern Ethiopia, particularly in the Tigray region of Ethiopia, was engineered by the socialist communist government that was in power at that particular time. I didn't know that. Yes. That's crazy. And uh, so there's some interesting, just cover some interesting history in relationship to that. And so this was, you know, sometimes referred to as the as the Tigray. Uh, this is this is up the the region up around uh, Aksum, yeah, which was the ancient capital of the Aksumite Empire. Uh, it was created by the Coordinating Committee of the Armed Forces, Police and Territorial Army, otherwise known as the DERG. Its purpose was, and being a socialist government, of course, they had control of the food because the idea behind socialism is that all men are equal, just some are more equal than others. Mm. So you are equal if provided that you don't live in the Tigray region, so uh, we keep all the food down here in the south and we don't send any up to the north. Yeah, it's vanguard communism. That's right. Mm. And so um, the ideas behind it was, you know, population control, uh, genocide, ethnic cleansing. The Tigray region wasn't so keen on socialism. 
and this was a part of what was the Ethiopian Red Terror. So it was a continuation of the Ethiopian Red Terror. The Ethiopian Red Terror resulted in about 1.2 million people dying, mm. um, and uh, the the DERG, or the government, was also known as the Provisional Military Administration, and it was formed by army officers. Now, some of the policies that were used, obviously, you know, to keep the food in the south, but also to... Uh, provide the food for the army because the army was what was in uh, control at that particular time, and their idea was to create, you know, social transformation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you weren't interested in social transformation, then, well, you weren't going to get food. <laughs> now, the other thing that they did was because they wanted to keep uh, control of the people, because control is very much a a, a, a part of you know communism, you have to control people not just what they do, but how they think and otherwise. Mm. They de-ruralized the population, and so they brought the population into urban centres mm. forcibly. And what this did was it created a lot less people who were actually growing food. And the idea was bring them into urban centres, provide them with education and with water and with food. You know because the government provides everything in a socialist system. The problem was that they brought them all into these urban centres and then didn't provide anything, mm. and so people just tended to starve to death. Yeah, well. Um, so this was this was really a a terrible, terrible thing that was happening back in the nineteen forties. Uh, meanwhile, the government was spending forty six percent of its gross domestic product on the army. Wow, and three percent on health. <laughs> you know. Just, uh, just uh, this was this was the uh, Soviet bloc's uh, closest ally mm. in the African continent, and uh, so news reports started to get out uh, towards the end of this famine, and the various NGOs started to really gear up to provide famine relief, mm. and so I remember as a kid there being massive uh, fundraising drives to raise money to create relief for the famine, the vast majority of that relief actually went to the central government and was used by the army. That's the tragedy of it. Um, And uh, let me just say, I did did have it here. They estimate that $95 million in aid money was spent on weapons. (laughs) Yikes, dude. Yeah, so we've got lessons to learn from the past. Um, The tragedy is that it's back again. It's happening again. And by the way, I should I should just also mention this, and this will be uh, most interesting for um, all of those of us who enjoy a good conspiracy. Uh, there was an individual who was a part of this particular organ, this this government, uh, as a you know cutting his teeth, learning his trade, as a part of the Communist Party. His name was uh, Tedros Gebreos, Gebreyesus, I think it's pronounced. And, uh, yeah, kind of learnt a little bit about population control mm. and how it's done. Mm. Current head of the World Health Organization. Ooh, that's, that's pretty <laughs> intense. Yeah, that's pretty <laughs> intense. Very, very intense when you look into this guy's history and where he learnt his trade and what he was actually a part of and what he helped to engineer. Mm. Yikes. Yikes. <laughs> that's the side point. Uh, the, the the famine is back again. Mm. Of course, there's been civil war happening in Ethiopia again, and so you've got similar circumstances. It's uh, estimated the United Nations is now estimating that 
there is 350,000 people who are on the verge of starvation in the northern Tigray region. And so this would be a lot of people that I knew and met while I was there. Mm. Uh, Lawson, you didn't make it up to the north, but um, Etienne McClintock and myself did and met some really wonderful people up there. But now they are facing starvation and for, and, and, you know, a very different government, but very similar circumstances. Mm. So it's been, you know, triggered by civil war. The Amharics, um, there's been, you know, a lot of conflict within the nation of Ethiopia b- between the various tribes that make up the nation. Mm. And, you know, and, and so, yeah, we need to be thinking and praying about the situation in Ethiopia. People are already dying from starvation in Ethiopia right now. Yeah, well. It's already taking place. And, of course, hopefully this time when we raise some aid for that particular country, it will go to the right places. Mm. Anyway, so let's keep Ethiopia in our prayer. Famines are definitely a sign of the times that Jesus is coming back soon. Yes. Moving on to another story. This one's about a devotional book that has come out. And one of the things that goes through my mind is if you want to take on a great country, a world superpower that you have no actual ability to come to grips with, how would you do that? Well, probably the best way to do it is by dividing it mm. internally. Mm. And so Amazon and Target yes. are currently promoting a and selling a book. Um, this is called A Rhythm of Prayer, a collection of meditations for renewal. renewal. It's written by Shaniqua Walker-Barnes, and it's a prayer of weary black women. Okay. Now, let me read read to you from one of these play, prayers. This is this is Target and Amazon. Okay, and right? let me just ask this. Is this targeted at a Christian audience? Okay, so I'll read from a prayer. Quote, Dear God, please help me hate white people, or at least want to hate them. At least I want to stop uh, caring about them individually and collectively. I want to stop caring about their misguided racist souls to stop believing that they can be better that they can stop being racist. That's a direct quote from this book that is being sold by, you know, major corporations right now and has not been pulled off the shelf. Okay, I have a que- okay, I have a question, I have a question, I have a, I have a big big question. Is yes. this the actual context of what she was writing? Like Okay, so you want some context? Was, was it followed, I can give you some context. Was it followed by like, oh, this is how I feel, but I want to change. No, because it goes on to list all the reasons why it would make sense to hate white people. She explains that she wants to hate nice white people, the ones who have her over for dinner but who question BLM, or the white progressives who have read enough books to sound like they understand and care about vague concepts like racial justice but who continually undermine the cause. She says that uh, she doesn't hate white people who are into social justice. Uh, this, This person is a Christian and a church pastor. Yikes. Oh, so this is some pretty so heavy stuff. Bad. And what we need to do as Christians when we come across something like this is we need to respond with love. Mm. The Bible says, love those that hate you. Yes. And that's the only thing that we can do right here is to respond with love. Because what the devil is trying to do is trying to drive a wedge. He's trying to create division in our world. Mm. And we need to be pulling together as Christians. We need to be uniting together. And racism is like the worst, most awful thing that there is. Mm-hmm. And we need 100%. to be as far away from it as we possibly You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. 
Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to The Breakfast Show on Faith FM 87.6, 87.8 or 88 right across Australia. Joining me on the phone this morning is Christopher Brohier from uh, the Australian Christian Lobby uh, to talk about the issue of euthanasia, particularly in South Australia, but broadly speaking, more around Australia. Christopher, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mark. Good to be here and morning, everybody. Now, Christopher, you're a lawyer. You've been working on these kinds of issues for some time. When it comes to the issue of euthanasia, it's something that I've commented on from time to time, but I'm wondering whether you can just give us some insights as to why, as Christians, we would oppose euthanasia. And and the, and the reason I say this is that as Christians, we have a natural, I guess, calling to reduce suffering in the world. We don't like to see suffering. And as a result of that, with creatures that we care for and creatures that we love, say, for instance, our pets, they reach a certain age and we take them to the vet and we have them put down because we don't like to see suffering. At the same time, I think that many of us, we look towards our old age and the time when all of us will pass away. None of us ever want to suffer in our old age. And I think that possibly many of us, would kind of look at it and go, you know what, that wouldn't be such a bad thing to have on the table. We don't want to see suffering. We want to reduce suffering in the world. So why, as Christians, would we oppose euthanasia? Well, that's a huge question. Um, And I think the answer to it is multi-layered. So the first issue is the terminology. Euthanasia really means mercy killing, the taking of a life, of a human life, by another person. So the issue of euthanasia is multi-layered. The first issue to address is the issue of terminology. Uh, so euthanasia actually means mercy killing, so it's the taking of a human life by another person. In the current debate, we have both euthanasia and assisted suicide. So the correct terminology, and it's the terminology used by the World Medical Association, is physician-assisted suicide. So that's the first issue. Then you come back to the question of truth. Jesus said, sanctify them in the truth, thy word is truth. As a Christian, what does the Bible say about human life? The first is, our life is a gift of God. People talk in this debate about the right to die. Philosophically, that means you must have a right to be born, which you don't have. But your life is a gift from God, and the biblical teaching is that your life ends when God says it does. The second, the the next issue is that we talk about an end of suffering. But how do you know? None of us know on the human plane what lies beyond the grave. We make an assumption, people who argue this make an assumption that there's suffering at the end. But The Bible says there's eternal life at the end of this life. And Jesus talked about eternal life and a second death. So if the Bible is true, this life is not the only life. The third issue is for a Christian living in a fallen world, there is a lot that going through difficulty brings to us in our character. Now, this is something that the world may not understand, but the New Testament is full of that our suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope. There's a lot of things that God does in the spirit uh, when we go through difficulties. And then the final issue is this, that 
when you said when I get when I get old and I'm suffering, I might want to take end it all, etc. But there's a lot that happens in those final chapters of life. And if I can give you this story uh, given to me by one of Australia's leading medical oncologists. He had a lady, a mum with three children, a dress, worked in a dress shop, came in with cancer. They treated her, she got better, she went away. Had a couple of years, came back with cancer again. They gave her an experimental treatment. She got better, went back for six months, came back again, and this time it was right through. And she wanted to, she said, I want you to end my life. And he said to her, okay, let's just find out why. And she said, well, firstly, I don't want to have that sense of lack of breath like my dad did. And he said, we can deal with that, so you won't have that breathlessness. The second thing she said was this, I can't do anything more for my family. And I've talked to them, and I'm ready to go. At the same time, her youngest daughter was having what the doctor described as a pathological grief reaction. She was screaming at the doctors and the nurses, you've got to make mum better. And he told her that. And he said this to her. Do you think your family only wants you for what you can do for them? And she got that, and she lasted five more days. Her daughter sat with her for those five days, and when she died, her daughter was much more at peace. And it is a critical issue in this consumer world that we get to understand that we are more than what we can do. And we have an intrinsic value to our friends, to our relatives, by just being here. Mm. So that's that's a multi-layered answer to that question. It is a multi-layered answer, and I think that there are some very good arguments, even for people coming from a secular audience, because or a secular perspective. Uh, many people listening to our show would come from a uh, would be from a secular audience. And you know the that that um, that last case that you give there that applies to everybody regardless of what your beliefs and what your faith is. Exactly, exactly. And the doctor I quoted, he did his his doctorate on this whole issue. And one of the points he makes is this: we say, and I mentioned that before, we say I want to end suffering, but we do not know. So a Christian may know what happens beyond the grave because Jesus Christ rose again. But as a non-Christian, you have a belief that that it's an end of suffering, but you don't know, so you can't complete complete the equation. To complete the equation that life, that death is better than life, you have to know what's in the other, on the other side, and we don't know that. It's a very valid point, Christopher. What about the pressure that it places on the elderly, just by the fact, the simple reality that the option to end life exists? Well, that's a, a significant question, Lars. So in Victoria now, under the Victorian legislation, doctors can't raise the issue of uh, physician-assisted suicide with patients. But they have people called navigators who go and talk to people about this issue. So can you imagine this conversation? Um uh, in, in Adelaide, we have people called lavender ladies, or lavender gentlemen who, who help uh, around the hospital. So someone comes and says, how are you going? Um, things are a bit tough. You know, have you ever thought that you can end your life? Now, I, I'm, I'm a legal practitioner by profession, and I've practiced in the area of, um, of testamentary litigation for years and years and years. And I know there's... 300, 400 years of reported cases of 
coercion in terms of wills and people's estates. And I've acted in lots of cases where people play bouncing wills with mum or dad. One one child takes them to one lawyer, another child takes them to another lawyer, and they play bouncing wills. Now, the proponents of this will say, well, we've got laws saying you can't coerce. Well, we've got laws saying you can't murder. We've got laws saying you can't steal. Has it ever stopped murder? Has it ever stopped stealing? The law reports tell you, the newspapers tell you, no. This will happen because we're living in a society now which looks at people as consumables. And the Aged Care Royal Commission told us very clearly that we do not treat our aging well. We just don't do that. And we treat them as an economic entity. And, and, and I know that from a personal story. My mum was in a nursing home. She had a care plan. She had to be shard every day. One day, the EN took us aside, the end nurse, and said, they're not following the care plan. You better look at it. And they had it. They were not showering her every day. And this was a lady who was partially incontinent. And for economic purposes, they were not showering her every day. So we took that matter up. We had a big fight with them. And we got that changed. But that is treating my mum as an economic entity. So if we can save money, will cut back her care. And this will happen in this country, that we'll start to say, we have restrictions now on on how, how sick you have to be, etc. but we will start to say it is costing a lot more to look after this person than to say it's time you, go, it's time you went. So you can kind of understand why a lot of state governments are seriously looking at this because it would be good for the economy. On a very short-term view, it'll be good for the economy. Um, but as with all of these things, I think it's going to be hugely um, deleterious to our economy because the more we start thinking of people as as economic entities, the more we, the less we start valuing people, and that plays out in lots of ways. One of the big ways is the problem of mental health because, and we're seeing that such a ballooning issue now, because why are we struggling so much with mental health? One of the issues is identity, and we are not believing that we are valuable for who we are, but we believe we are valuable for what we can do, and if we can't do things, then we start to become down on ourselves. It's, it's, it is in the end, it's going to be hugely costly to our society. It uh, this so what you're really talking about then is a slippery slope of okay, this is where we start now, but where do we end up once we embrace this kind of a philosophy? Now, I guess my next question is: if we look at other countries that have had euthanasia for a lot longer than what we have, do we have evidence that they are going down this slippery slope? And how far down are they actually going? Well. Belgium and Holland have had it for, I don't know, 20 years. And now they're euthanizing from one year old up. These parents think it's appropriate because the child's disabled. That's as far down the slippery slope as you can get. So how does a one-year-old make a decision, put up their hand and say, yes, I would like to uh, have 
physician-assisted suicide. How does a one-year-old actually make that decision for themselves? Well, they don't, obviously. The parents do it. So so, so now we have non-voluntary. So it, it can't be called assisted suicide if it's not voluntary. No, no, no. We have another word for it. Uh, it's been around a long time, yeah. Okay, so this is pretty serious stuff. Now, um, I wonder whether, Christopher Broyer, whether you could just take us on a, uh, a, a quick um, tour around Australia as to where we are at in the various states in Australia as far as uh, assisted suicide or um, euthanasia goes. Yeah, sure. So Victoria kicked it off. Its team has been in play for two years. And uh, it's available for people who are over 18 who have a prognosis of six months' life because of an incurable illness which is causing them intolerable suffering. Or uh, one year if you've got a a motor neurodegenerative disease like motor neuron, etc. The next cover of the rank has been Western Australia, and its scheme has still not come into operation, but it's a bit, bit more, uh, has a, has a few less safeguards than the Victorian scheme. Tasmania has passed its, uh, VAD or BAS legislation in February of this year, and it's a, again a bit, way, a bit looser than Victoria, particularly in that it allows teleconsultations for physician-assisted suicide, and I'd like to talk about that in a moment. South Australia, yesterday, there was a second reading speech, uh, speeches on the on the uh, physician-assisted suicide bill, and that passed the second reading, 33 votes to 7. Um, and uh, it's now going to the committee stage where we'll talk about it in detail on the 9th of June. Queensland, the bill is ready to come into Parliament any day. It might even be this week, if not next week. And there's a push in New South Wales to get a bill going. Um, the government's not going to push that like they did the abortion bill because of the massive reaction they had in, in New South Wales. Um, but um, that looks like coming on at some time, probably after the, after the election, which I think is going to be later this year or early next year. So where are the areas then where we have the best opportunity to actually do something in a practical way to make our world a better place uh, in relationship to, yeah, solving this whole problem that we have here in Australia? I mean, obviously, we've got some states that have been up and running for some time. Where do we have an opportunity to act now? Um, So if any of your listeners are in South Australia... Uh, you, we should be contacting our local state MP and asking them to reject the bill. Or if not, and realistically, the bill is going to pass in South Australia. The big change that we would like to see in this bill, if it does get through, is to allow for what's called institutional conscientious objection rights. So let me unpack that. All the bills allow for conscientious objection rights for doctors and uh, uh, health practitioners. None of the bills, none of the laws to date allow for 
conscientious objection for organizations like, say, the Catholic hospitals and Catholic palliative care or any other faith-based palliative care system. That's a huge deficiency. Uh, in South Australia, the, Cal- the head of Calvary Hospitals, um, Jim Birch, has said publicly that Calvary cannot and will not carry out this procedure. And so it's putting one of the largest private health providers in South Australia on a direct collision course with the parliament. And we could, if it's, if, if Calvary is forced to do this, they could close. That, that's a realistic issue. So what we want to see, and we think there's a realistic chance of getting this, is to see the parliament pass a institutional conscious objection right, giving institutions the right to say, right up front, we, 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 we won't do this. And that's very important for people who don't want to go down this path. If I get a terminal illness, speaking for myself, I do not want some 20-something-year-old to come and sit next to me and say, dear old Codger, um, is it time you, you ended it all? I don't want that. Uh, because I know that there are things in my life, even if I'm bedridden, there are things in my life which make it valuable. Uh, and for me, and speaking as a Christian, I can pray. If I can't do anything else, I can pray. Uh, so I think that's really, really important. If we get that, we want to then start moving that through, through to the other states, to Tassie, uh, Victoria, New South Wales. We need to get a bridgehead in one of these states, and it looks like we could get it in South Australia. So any anyone listening in South Australia, that's a really, really key thing to push for. Yes, and I think that um, um, we've got you know a large listener base in South Australia, so we'd encourage everybody over there. This really is an issue of religious liberty, and for institutions, and you know, the Faith FM, of course, is owned by the Adventist Church. We have a very large private hospital in New South Wales, and I guess you know we need to be doing something in South Australia right now because we can push for the religious liberty for institutions there, but we can probably even begin to act uh, preemptively in New South Wales because. Because I think what you've pointed out is that sooner or later this will become an issue, whether under this government or a future government. And if we can start to, um, you know, act before, you know, be on the front foot rather than on the back foot, then I think that it would be a, uh, a fantastic opportunity. I think that's really important what you said, Lan. We've got to be on the front foot. Too often we've waited till the other side have 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 come up with the legislation and been working with the MPs. And to give them their due, they've been very committed to this. They've worked really, really hard. So I think we've got to work really, really hard to get what we want. Yes, indeed we do. We need to stand up for religious liberty and for life wherever we can. Christopher uh, Bro here from uh, uh, Australian Christian Lobby, thank you so much for joining us here on Faith FM this morning. No worries, love. Thanks for having me on. We're going to be back after this song, followed by the 8 o'clock news. Uh, You're listening to Faith FM. Thanks for being a part of the Faith FM family. Join our community on Facebook or get in touch at 1-800-FAITH-FM.